Hi, and welcome to the very appropriately named inauguration episode of Sheep Thrills. My name is Emily Lamb, and I'm a freshman majoring in political science here at GW. I'm recording this episode from my hometown in Greentown, Pennsylvania, but by the time it's airing this Saturday, I'll be in D.C. Just to give you a little idea of what to expect from this show, I'll be taking you through some of the biggest political events of the week and giving you some of my takes, which range from extremely lukewarm to hot uh, on these current events. You can also look forward to some really exciting guests, um, games, and more. So with all that being said, obviously, today I'm going to talk about the inauguration of the 46th president of the United States, Joe Biden. Obviously, as I'm sure you all know, this inauguration happened with an extremely tumultuous backdrop. So over the last three weeks of January, we had an insurrection the first week, an impeachment trial the second week, and the inauguration of a new president the third week. So not only is there also a global pandemic happening right now, but I think the entire country is still processing the insurrection that did happen at the Capitol almost three weeks ago. So whether you want to call it a riot or an insurrection or a protest, I really don't think it's a moment that's going to get forgotten anytime soon. And if you'll remember, it seems like a million years ago, but the insurrection happened at the same time as the Georgia runoff election. So I woke up in the morning, I turned on the news uh, just to watch them finish up the returns for the Georgia runoffs. I knew they'd have a decision around noon. And I also thought, okay, fine, I'll also watch the joint session of Congress where they're going to count the electoral votes. I knew it was going to be somewhat dramatic, um, but, you know, it's mostly a ceremonial thing. So there would be a little bit of fighting, but mostly just a lot of members of Congress standing up and talking for a long time, which isn't, you know, different than what's usually expected. So I'm sitting there with my sister and we're watching the news and she gets up and she goes to lunch um, for like half an hour and she comes back and she goes, so did democracy burn down while I was gone? And while she was gone is when the insurrection really started happening and they started actually getting into the Capitol. And I was sitting there. I was like, yeah, kind of. Uh, there was, you know, violence and people breaking windows. And my sister sat down, we watched the news for the entire day. Um, and it was just a really crazy situation how it turned such a, like on a dime, like half hour before she left, it was normal and fine and ceremonial. Half hour she got back and the entire capital system was in lockdown. And I think what's really scary um, is that the aftermath of the riot was in a lot of ways even scarier than the actual riot. And to be honest, I'm like not much of a conspiracy theorist, but all of the information that we got after the riot was so scary. Like seeing all of the pictures of protesters with these heavy duty zip ties and weapons um, and realizing that it all could have been so much worse than it actually was. You know, the fact that we of, you know, obviously there were deaths, which were really horrifying, but the fact that we could have had numerous deaths of elected officials, which could have kind of sent our entire chain of command into tailspin in America was really very scary. And then also realizing that it all was somewhat premeditated and could have even been aided by members of Congress. So actually, my former representative uh, for New Jersey's 11th Congressional District, Mikey Sherrill, went on the news a couple weeks ago, and she spoke about the fact that she saw members of Congress giving large tours the day before the riot. Um, and she didn't give any of their names, but I think it's really significant that she and then 30 members of Congress even went as far as to write a letter to the acting House and Senate sergeants at arms to ask them to investigate what happened. Um, and I think that it's really significant that 
we had this major security breach and it could have been aided by members of Congress. And I think that makes me pretty nervous about kind of what the future of Congress looks like. So again, we had three, everyone's been talking about this, but we had three Wednesdays in America, right? The first was the insurrection. The second was the impeachment. The second impeachment in four years. Um, and then an inauguration of a new president. And I think what is also significant within those three weeks is the fact that it was former President Donald Trump's final days in office. And he was using his last shreds of power to do his last um, couple things that he wanted to get done. And I think the fact that he had the second impeachment uh, also happening was very important because it meant that, you know, he probably had this whole legislative agenda that he wanted to get done in his last couple weeks. Um, but that was completely stopped by the fact that Republicans who had been supporting him all this time ended up stopping that support because of the fact that they saw that he incited kind of a riot on the Capitol. So the things that he did towards the end of his term, very interesting. So first of all, of course, he pardoned very a lot of people and he um, he also commuted various sentences, which I thought was interesting. Um, and what I thought was the most interesting was that he did not pardon a lot of the whistleblowers that have been on the pardon list for several years. So one of them, very well-known example of being Edward Snowden, who is currently countryless but living in Russia. Um, if he comes back to America, he'll be put in prison for, you know, charges of sedition, basically. Um, and, you know, it's important to note that one of Trump's big promises when he got into office was draining the swamp. And what a lot of people perceived as being part of draining, quote unquote, draining the swamp is pardoning a lot of the people who were whistleblowers on bad government activity. Uh, and there were, I think, three whistleblowers on the pardon list, and none of them were able to to get the pardon. However, there were pardons for rappers like Lil Wayne, which I thought was very interesting because Lil Wayne was like a vocal supporter of the president or the former president. And we all knew that this was definitely going to be the case, but we do know that the former president used this pardon power to reward his followers and to, you know, continue his streak of kind of questionable and upsetting criminal justice decisions that he made throughout his term, specifically towards the end um, in bringing back federal executions, uh, which launched a huge conversation around the death penalty, both on a federal and a state level. Um, and so his choices about who to pardon and who to not pardon kind of falls right along with the decisions he made to execute various individuals who in a lot of situations seemed to be innocent or definitely did not deserve the death penalty. Not that anyone deserves the death penalty, but it was still an interesting um, turn of events with who he ended up deciding to pardon. As well as his pardon list, uh, Trump also signed an executive order on building a National Garden of American Heroes. And you might have seen some of this in the news, but basically he just wanted to create a giant National Garden with statues of all different, basically, American heroes. And the list is very random, in my opinion. Um, we've got people like Alexander Graham Bell and Muhammad Ali, um, Ulysses S. Grant, all the way to people like Alex Trebek, who passed away at the end of 2020. Um, and as well as people who probably deserve the praise of being one of America's heroes, we also have people like Christopher Columbus, uh, who 
who, you know, is lauded as, quote unquote, the discoverer of America, even though, as we all know, that there were plenty of people living in the Americas before Christopher Columbus even stepped foot on the continent. So there has been a lot of um, feedback from that as well. But basically, he my, my thought is that Donald Trump brought in every remaining aide and just let them all pick one name out of a hat. And that's how he created this list. Because generally, it's not a bad list. It's just an extremely random one um, with people that he chose to include and people that he did not chose to choose to include. I'm looking at the list now. Elvis Presley is on the list. Walt Disney, Ernest Hemingway, just a lot of people. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if this sculpture garden ever gets built. Um, and it'll be interesting also to see where it goes um, and whether... Yeah, whether the Biden administration actually acts on this executive order or whether they actually just turn it over altogether. The final days of the Trump administration also included a lot of very interesting statements um, and actions by non-Trump members of the administration. So something that I found particularly frustrating from these final days was a series of tweets by former Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo. And he actually tweeted a couple days ago um, a statement that said, and I'm reading a quote here from a tweet, Wokeism, multiculturalism, all the isms, they are not who America is. They distort our glorious founding and what this country is about. Our enemies stoke these divisions because they know it makes us weaker. This is also attached to a graphic that uh, was another quote from former Secretary Pompeo that said, Censorship, wokeness, political correctness, it all points in one direction. Authoritarianism cloaked as moral righteousness. And when I saw this tweet, I was extremely frustrated for various reasons because multiculturalism is literally what America is. You know, we were taught from our early history classes that the reason that America is so great is because it's a melting pot. And all of these different immigrants all brought their own unique cultures. And that's why American culture is so unique and so exciting, because there's people from all around the world who have made America theirs. And I don't know if Pompeo missed that lesson in class But all I know is that I think that he missed a very important point about America and about what makes America great. Because there isn't one unique, specific American culture that applies to everyone. And the other really important note is that we live in an increasingly global community. And it's important in that vein to understand other cultures and appreciate other cultures that aren't necessarily our own. Um, And I worry that the the idea that multiculturalism is a bad thing is going to just increasingly push us towards kind of the nationalism that we've seen over the past several years. And we've always, you know, had kind of a nationalist undertone to a lot of policies in America. But the idea, this like rapidly growing nationalism in America is really scary and really dangerous. And I'm afraid that if we continue to go down the path that multiculturalism is a bad thing, We're just going to continue kind of wiping out what makes American culture unique and individual. Um, And the reason that American culture is kind of exciting is because we brought in influences from all over the world. Um, And the fact that there isn't one 
you know, there isn't anything about American culture that isn't influenced by another country or another government. And I think that that's a really exciting thing about being an American and having all of those influences around us every day. It's also important to note that the literal definition of multiculturalism is the presence of or support for the presence of several distinct cultural or ethnic groups within a society. So Mike Pompeo saying that multiculturalism is in America, in my opinion, is kind of saying the quiet part out loud in that he does not want to support the kind of distinct cultural ethnic groups within a society. You know, we're not a we're not a homogenous society that, you know, needs to all be the same thing. Uh, and I think the farther we get into believing that and believing, you know, negative lies about multiculturalism, the the more we will allow our country to become more divided. Um, so anyway, I just thought that was a really interesting, you know, one of the final statements from a Trump administration degrading diversity in America. And I just think that that's a very stark contrast from, you know, what we're seeing now, even in the early days of the Biden administration. So now that we've talked a little bit about, you know, the ends of the Trump administration, let's talk about the actual inauguration. So in my opinion, uh, obviously, it was very sad that uh, we couldn't all be in DC actually going to the inauguration. But I thought, all things considered, with the kind of threat of you know, a domestic insurrection and obviously, again, a global pandemic happening, um, I thought that the transition team did a great job putting together the inauguration. I thought that the flags on the National Mall were really beautiful. um, And I just thought that they did a great job putting together an event that was, you know, it's really going to go down in history as probably one of the more unique um, inaugurations ever. So Biden's inaugural address I thought was very interesting um, in that he kind of kept with the same themes that he's been talking about throughout the primary and throughout the general election campaign, where he is the candidate of unity and he is going to, you know, build this really broad coalition of governing um, and he's going to work really hard to bring in Republicans who, you know, didn't vote for him and don't support him. And he's going to bring in kind of the progressive wing of the party that that wants him to support policies that he might not necessarily agree with. Um, And so, yeah, unity is the main theme of this inaugural address, but it's going to be really interesting to see what that unity actually ends up looking like down the line. So it's really very much an uphill battle. Um, A lot of Republicans, I couldn't find an uh, an accurate number that's kind of up to date as of January, Um, but we know that a lot of Republicans still believe that the election was stolen. And so while we know that Biden does have a mandate from both the popular vote and the Electoral College, there's still this extremely vocal minority that is kind of speaking out against Biden being able to govern. Um, And it's also very significant that you know, Biden might not have all of the support in government because, you know, there's a the, the Democrats currently have the trifecta in government. They have the House, they have the Senate um, with the tie breaking vote from Vice President Kamala Harris, and they have the presidency. So theoretically, they can kind of get through a lot of the reforms and a lot of the policy that that they want to pursue. So it'll be really interesting to see if this vocal minority stops a lot of the progress. And we can already see some of this playing out on Twitter and on Fox News. Um, And so it'll, again, it'll be really interesting. We can't predict right now what the state of politics is going to look like. 
in the next few years. But it'll be interesting to see if this mandate that Joe Biden has from, again, both the Electoral College and the popular vote will kind of stand up to um, the power of this group that really, truly believes that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Beyond policy, it's also going to be really interesting to see how all of these events will affect the institutions that America was kind of founded on. So among the the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, there's kind of a lot of, maybe not a lot of infighting, but a lot of disagreement about whether, you know, we should be looking at voting um, as a solution to a lot of kind of institutional problems in America. And whether or not you agree that, you know, voting is the be-all end-all of um, democracy or whether we really need like stronger institutional changes, it's still a very intrinsic part of our democracy. And to be casting so much fear on kind of the, the security of our elections is going to be a really interesting challenge for future elections. Um, and the 2022 midterms, I think, are going to be an interesting challenge for everyone because it's going to require, you know, Democrats to continue to increase voter turnout and address the the issues that they had in their campaign in 2020. Um, and it's going to kind of challenge Republicans to decide whether they want to continue casting doubt on the security of our elections or to kind of move on. It'll also be interesting to see if vote by mail remains a kind of considerable considerable part of American elections, because we know for, you know, various reasons, there was incredible voter turnout, like really historic voter turnout this year. Um, and part of that, I think, was the increased accessibility of voting through voting by mail. And again, that was, you know, mostly a big thing because of the pandemic that we're in. Um, however, a lot of states did change their um, rules to allow for anybody to request a vote by mail ballot for any reason. They don't have to be sick or out of state um, or have like a legitimate reason to get a vote by mail ballot. And it'll be interesting to see if those laws stay in place in 2022 um, and whether, again, that contributes to kind of a sustained voter turnout um, at a high level, which I personally hope it hope it does. Uh, I think that vote by mail is a great thing. As we know, it's secure and it's safe. Um, and it does lend itself to increased voter turnout because it's more accessible for everyone to vote. You can vote several weeks in advance. You don't have to worry about, you know, actually getting up the day of and going and waiting in a line. Um, and I think that something that the Democrats with the trifecta should be really working on um, early on before the midterms is you know, passing legislation that is going to make voting easier and more accessible for more people. Because we know that a democracy can only continue to be a democracy with participation. So we can only hope that people see that their vote really counts and they're going to continue contributing to democracy. Now that Biden has been inaugurated, there is a lot of pressure for him to hit the ground running, uh, which he has kind of, I think, definitely responded to. And he, um, again, I'm recording this on Thursday night. Um, and so yesterday was his first day in office and he had a stack of executive orders and he was just going down and signing them. Um, and so he's already made a lot of important policy changes from the Trump administration. And again, kind of as I talked about earlier, uh, Joe Biden 
promoted himself throughout the campaign as a coalition builder. He brought in moderate Republicans and he brought in, you know, the strong left wing of the Democratic Party. So now that he had this entire coalition built to elect him, he now has even more people that he needs to appease with his policy decisions. So it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, which lane he ends up going, if he ends up kind of going down a centrist route or if he ends up kind of surprising the liberal wing of the party um, and ends up kind of supporting a lot more like leftist reforms. But at this point, from what we can see with the executive orders that he's already signed, he is really keeping to you know promises made, promises kept. Um, so some of the things that I think are particularly notable and some responses to them, um, he um, already signed an executive order to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords, which is, again, really significant because, again, thinking about Trump administration policies of kind of very much America first um, and also kind of a general denial of climate change. So this is a really big um, note right off the bat that he is going to be making active changes against climate change. So, you know, there's been various responses to this, but um, something that I thought we should talk about is the fact that Ted Cruz tweeted Again, I'm reading a quote directly from his tweet. Um, By rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, President Biden indicates he is more interested in the views of the citizens of Paris than in the jobs of the citizens of Pittsburgh. So there's a lot to unpack with that. um, And and many citizens of Pittsburgh are taking a big issue with uh, Cruz's words. But I think the, the most notable thing about this whole argument of Pittsburgh versus Paris is that Again, we live in a global community, and if America wants to be, you know, the leader of the free world and, and wants to be seen as, you know, someone to, to be looked up to on the global scene, if we are not taking the, you know, the, the actions that need to be taken in order to fight climate change, then how do we expect any other country to take any steps themselves? You know, I think America is... is Again, we want to be seen as the leaders of the free world. So if we're not going to be role models for the actions that need to be taken to fight climate change, then what position are we in to, you know, demand democracy in places around the world or to, you know, criticize another country for their actions um, on climate change or on anything, really? If we're not going to be role models for, you know, saving the, the, the world, And, you know, pushing ourselves a little bit outside of our comfort zone with the policies that we're willing to implement. You know, I just think that there's a there's a disconnect between what Senator Ted Cruz believes is America's role in the world, um, you know, from a military standpoint versus what America's place in the world is from a humanitarian standpoint. And I think that's hypocritical um, to believe that we should have a military presence around around the world, but we shouldn't have a humanitarian presence, and we shouldn't have an environmental presence around the world. So I just think that it's it's an important conversation to have uh, around kind of the, the general hypocrisy of, you know, if we are going to believe about this, like, superiority of American culture, um, but we're not going to actually use that, you know, quote-unquote superiority to help people, kind of what's the point? So I just think that's an interesting note to bring up because I think that environmental policy is going to be a huge debate over the next four years. Um, And I think that, you know, rejoining the Paris Climate Accords was a bare minimum policy that um, 
President Biden could have supported. Um, and I think that he is going to receive a lot of pressure from the left to, you know, support the Green New Deal um, and support kind of more aggressive climate policies. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what Biden's perspective is and, you know, what kind of like the center wing of the party believes is the responsibility of the American government, whether it's just, you know, bare minimum joining a international agreement to fight climate change or whether we do have kind of a larger responsibility to fight climate change um, and expend even more resources than we already are on, you know, attacking climate change from, you know, head on. And the other interesting environmental um, protection that Biden supported was ending the Keystone Pipeline um, and revoking all the oil and gas development at national wildlife monuments. So this is basically a response to the drilling that's happening in Alaska. Um, and I think that this is, again, a really important policy. We've seen debates about the Keystone Pipeline happening for several years now. Um, and to just right off the bat sign an executive order ending the construction of that pipeline is really significant because, again, it's a strong statement about where the Biden administration is going to fall on climate change. Um, and also an important point on where um, the Biden administration is going to fall on reversing Trump era policies. You know, after you know, probably today and tomorrow, there's not going to be much, you know, left of the Trump administration. So in the long run, it'll be interesting to see what the Trump legacy is um, after kind of a very tumultuous four-year term um, of whether Biden will kind of reverse every policy that Trump supported or whether there will be kind of any remnants of Trump left at the end of Biden's term in four years. Beyond environmental uh, protections, it's also really significant the the COVID uh, decisions that the Biden administration made. So right off the bat, he established a federal mask mandate. So basically, like on all federal grounds um, and, you know, national parks, anything like that, you need to be wearing a mask. And I think that this is, a, a sm again, it's a small policy change. But at the same time, it's really significant because it is demonstrating this kind of 180 on COVID policy um, that the Biden administration is really going to attack from all fronts um, and to make sure that this pandemic ends as soon as possible. Um, and kind of, again, along those same lines, this is a much larger policy, but the, the Biden administration already signed executive orders, uh, basically redistributing all of the COVID resources and kind of centralizing everything. So specifically with, you know, with testing and with vaccinations, really making sure that the vaccines are going to the right place and the right people um, and that they're being distributed as efficiently as possible. And so two kind of interesting um, policy changes were that the Biden administration brought back the Directorate for Global Health Security and Biodefense, which was a position from the Obama years that they used to fight the Ebola crisis. Um, and they also... Um, created an official response coordinator. So now that there's one central person who's responsible for kind of being the go-between uh, with the American people and with uh, the president and with all of the kind of the necessary people to make sure that the vaccine rollout and testing and all of those kinds of things are being handled appropriately. Um, and I have to say that I think that the idea of having a central coordinator um, is a really great idea. Um, you know, there's a 
it's this is a very scary issue and there's a lot of different departments that need to be kind of coordinated together to fight this crisis um and having one person in the center of all of it just makes sense um and again it's something that i'm surprised that we didn't have before another really interesting policy that again this is kind of a through line of this entire episode is kind of globalism and multiculturalism um but we've officially, the United States has officially rejoined the World Health Organization. So again, this indicates a really strong reversal on Trump era policies of kind of turning away from the global community and being really, you know, judgmental of the United Nations and not wanting to contribute to the United Nations um, in a way that was substantial. And again, the this decision and the decision to rejoin the Paris Accords um, are all indicators that, you know, America is coming back to the table um, on the world front. So it'll be interesting to see how our relationships with various countries change um, kind of throughout the next couple of years as we kind of rebuild relationships with allies um, and fight against, you know, what are perceived to be our enemies on the global front. And again, Biden signed a ton of executive orders over the past couple of days. Um, so there's kind of too many things to talk about in one episode, but um, there's a couple other important actions that he took, um, including he halting the construction of the border wall, which was, you know, the Trump era piece de resistance, despite the fact that it didn't really end up getting built. Um, and uh, what are some other policies, you know, defending the Dreamers program that, again, came about during the Obama era. Um, he also signed an executive order making sure that non-citizens are, again, being counted in the census. Um, he ended the quote-unquote Muslim ban. Uh, so a lot of other uh, pieces of legislation around civil rights, around immigration, that are really important um, you know, immigration, again, was a big issue in the 2016 election. It wasn't as much of a, um, a main topic during 2020 just because of the fact that, um, you know, the public health, I think, was kind of the main issue they were talking about for obvious reasons. Um, but Trump really ran in 2016 on a policy of strong, strong immigration laws um, that have been really controversial over the past four years. Um, you know, there's been a lot of calls to just get rid of um, ICE altogether, um, stop the building of the border wall, you know, making sure to protect immigrants um, in America, make it easier to immigrate to America. Uh, so it's it's definitely, again, it's a significant and noticeable trend that Biden has been um, reversing a lot of these immigration policies to kind of make it more equitable in the long run. And um, beyond all of the policy decisions that Biden has already enacted. Uh, uh, just a couple little side notes about things that I did not know about the, the Trump administration. Um, in that, you know, when you when a new administration comes in to the West Wing, they redecorate, the Oval Office is completely redone, they bring in new art and a lot of other things. Um, but what I learned today is that Donald Trump had a red button on his desk that he would push and someone would come in with a Diet Coke. Um, and apparently he did that like several times throughout the day. And he would press this button and someone would bring in a Diet Coke for him. Um, and somebody noted today um, as they were, I think they were interviewing Joe Biden in the Oval Office, is that the, the Diet Coke button got removed. Um, and I just think that's, I don't even know what to say about it. 
think it's extremely interesting and a little bit upsetting. Um, but I think, you know, wouldn't we all like a Diet Coke button in our lives? And the other, you know, just general side note about the Biden administration um, is that he had a really strong conversation with, um, you know, the federal appointees yesterday when they were being sworn in about ethics. And he, I don't know exactly a statement, I don't have it in front of me, but he basically said, you know, if I ever hear that you spoke down to another um, employee or you ever, you know, acted in a way that was disrespectful, like you're going to be fired on the spot. And this kind of, it just makes me believe that Joe Biden really practices what he preaches. Um, And despite the fact that I know that, you know, there's going to be a lot of kind of infighting in the next four years within the Democratic Party, I do have high hopes for the fact that whether or not every single policy that we want gets implemented, I do believe that we're going to have an increased, you know, overturn to civility uh, within the White House. And I hope that that turns itself into an increase and, you know, a return to civility throughout government. I hope that we can see politicians, you know, talking to each other and interacting. And, you know, I I think that, you know, bipartisanship is a debate that we can have uh, about whether or not we should be negotiating uh, with either side. But I do think that we need to, you know, learn how to engage in discourse um, in a way that it's that is productive and is going to actually result in solutions being promoted as opposed to just general disarray and fighting and disagreement. Um, so hopefully, you know, all of these policy changes kind of from an ethics standpoint and from a public policy standpoint, they all point towards us kind of hopefully coming together as a country a little bit um, and coming together with the world's community as well course, it is kind of too early to tell um, kind of what this administration is going to look like and what it's going to mean for kind of the future of the Democratic Party. But, um, you know, no one wants to look towards 2024 right now. We just got through an inauguration, kind of a really tumultuous two months after the election. But, you know, we don't know if Biden is going to run again in 2024. If I had to make an assessment, I would say that he's not going to do that. You know, he's a transitional president um, and he's going to kind of make way for a new generation of Democrats. Um, And it's going to be really interesting to see if the policies that he implements throughout his term are going to lend themselves to, um, you know, this new generation of Democratic leaders being someone like Kamala Harris or um, Pete Buttigieg or, you know, individuals like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So it'll be really interesting to see what these policies and these ethical reforms and, you know, the unity of the country after four years and whether what, you know, what kind of new administrations that that'll lend themselves to. But, you know, only time will tell. um, And we've got a very long time, I think, before we have to start thinking about, you know, the 2024 primaries. Um, And personally, I am not looking forward to it. This primary season and this general election was just too tumultuous. Um, and I really do think it's going to take the full four years to process it all. Um, and by the time we kind of get over it, it'll be time for a new election. So hopefully electoral politics calms down just a little bit. But for some reason, I don't think that it will. It's definitely, you know, impossible to predict what the future will hold. But, you know, as I've been doing 
a lot of reflecting on the last four years. I've been thinking a lot about the Trump administration and what's changed personally for me kind of over the past four years. And um, when I was 2016, I was a freshman in high school um, and the whole election season started when I was in eighth grade. Um, and when I, in eighth grade in my hometown, you take civics and it's like kind of a, just a really introduction to government course. But we talked a lot about politics and about the election. And so it was a, you know, kind of a formative time to be learning about politics because, you know, we had this election kind of looming right over our shoulders. Um, and then again, I was taking, you know, intro to American history, um, my freshman year when the election actually happened. Um, and I, think that this is a very funny story, but the inauguration in 2016, I was in my health class and I asked my teacher if we could, you know, watch the inauguration. It was a very historic event, seemed kind of important to watch. And my teacher basically said, no, absolutely not. We have to watch this documentary. So instead of watching, uh, you know, the inauguration of a new president, you know, the first one that we could kind of remember as a class, um, we watched a documentary about STDs. So it is what it is. I watched CNN on my phone under my desk. Um, but it's just, you know, thinking about how far we've come in the past four years that I'm now a freshman in college. You know, I'm still at home with my parents because of, again, the pandemic. Um, but, uh, you know, I got to actually watch the inauguration and I'm a political science major. I'm learning about um government and elections and institutions and, you know, how important it is to protect those things. So obviously high school is an extremely formative time regardless of who the president is. Um, But for me, as someone who realized during this four years that, you know, politics was what I wanted to do, um, this was very, very formative for me. And I really think that, you know, maybe I have Donald Trump to thank for the fact that my, you know, ideals are such an important part of my life and that, you know, policy is something that I really care deeply about. And I think that I I would have been invested in politics um, if Hillary Clinton had been the president um, because that's just who I was at that point. But I don't think that I would have paid as much attention or cared as deeply um, about, you know, about these policy changes if Donald Trump wasn't the president. And I think that, you know, there's been conversations about this online as well. It really exposes something that's really interested, interesting about people in the past four years is that, you know, we had these really bad four years with President Trump and now we have a new president and we can go back to ignoring politics. And obviously that's not something we can do. We need to continue being really vigilant about talking about policies and questioning the government um, and making sure that we're always, you know, paying attention to what the government is doing. Um, And I've been really privileged not to have experienced really detrimental effects from Trump's policies firsthand. Um, But again, I've I've become a lot more vigilant and a lot more focused on social justice. and I, I, I'm thankful for that, actually. I'm thankful that I am more aware and I know more about other communities and I know about how, you know, policy affects different people in different ways. But at the same time, I feel like, um, you know, this administration 
I, I, str- I kind of sound very dramatic saying this, but I was interested in a lot of things at the beginning of high school. I was interested in engineering. You know, I was interesting in, interested in journalism. But this administration really made me realize that the, you know, to me at least, um, the only thing that I could think to do to continue to right all these wrongs was to go into politics. Um, and I know a lot of people who had very similar experiences to me. Um, so, you know, looking forward again, looking forward by looking backwards, I think that the residual effects of the Trump administration uh, are really going to be impactful for a very long time um, because of so many young people who kind of grew up and came of age during this administration who realized that going into politics was their small way to make some kind of substantial change. Um, So again, it'll be interesting to see what policy looks like in 20, 30 years, um, and especially when we all you know, come of age and we're starting to run for office. And at GW, you know, there's a future politician around every corner. Of course, moving forward, uh, you know, we need to all stay vigilant with this administration and we need to encourage everyone around us to remain vigilant, um, you know, paying attention to these policies and seeing what's slipping through the cracks because, you know, there's there's a whole lot of policy issues that are important right now and we need to make sure that we are addressing all of them in a way that's substantial and going to, you know, cause real change for real people on the ground. Okay, with all of that being said, a little bit heavier, I want to talk about some of the lighter and more amazing moments from the inauguration. Um, And if you're on Twitter, you've probably seen a lot of these things, but I just still feel like they're important to bring up. Um, Extremely important cultural moments for all of us. So first of all, of course, you know, if you know me or you kind of have been listening to the show at all, you know that I'm going to talk about Bernie Sanders and his mittens and the same jacket that he wore um, in, you know, the popular Bernie meme. Um, and he's just great. You know, you can disagree with him politically. Um, many people do. But you can't deny that he is a consistent man. Um, he likes to be comfy. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, and, you know, I was we were doing some research into the mittens and it turned out that he, um, uh, one of his constituents in Vermont actually knitted him the mittens and like the fur lining is made out of like recycled plastic. And uh, yeah, so there's like homemade Etsy gloves, Etsy mittens basically. And, um, you know, the, this woman gave them to Bernie at an event like a couple years ago and now he wears them everywhere. Um, and I just thought that was a really sweet, moment um and i you know the memes are great i really appreciate bernie being edited in edited in to any situation um personally i grew up in new jersey so my mayor was chris christie for a long time and somebody edited bernie sanders sitting in the chair um into the picture of chris christie on the beach um and if you don't know this picture basically a couple years ago um there was a uh, government shutdown in New Jersey, which meant that all of the beaches were closed and it was the middle of the summer. Um, so again, the government was shut down because of a budget crisis and uh, someone got a drone picture of Chris Christie sitting on the beach with his entire family when the beaches were closed to everyone else. Um, and it was like this major uh, drama, but the picture is great. Um, and I'm sure if you just go on Twitter and you search Chris Christie, Bernie, you'll see the picture and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, 
But yeah, the the most important thing you missed if you didn't watch the inauguration was just Bernie Sanders looking like a grandpa, uh, which, you know, we can all appreciate the levity during an otherwise very serious time. Um, also, just in general, everyone's outfits were great. Um, Michelle Obama and Jill Biden and Hillary Clinton all looked amazing. Um, it was interesting because I thought they were all wearing purple when they walked out or like purple or blue shades. Um, and I was wondering why that was. And it turns out that um, they were all wearing kind of shades of purple um, because that was the color of bipartisanship, uh, which, again, a very important signal um, for the future of Biden's administration. Um, and the other thing that I thought was very interesting and very great was the fact that Kamala Harris also wore purple. Um, and as she was walking out, um, some of the commentators on the news channel that I was watching said that um, the color purple was really important to her. It was a color from her primary campaign. Um, and that actually took inspiration from Shirley Chisholm, who was the first black woman ever to be elected to United States Congress. So uh, I just thought that that was a really great kind of homage to you know, all of the, all of the people that came before Kamala Harris, which, you know, again, what an incredible moment that, you know, so much is happening that I feel like we can't even appreciate it, that, you know, again, whether or not you just agree with her politically, you can't deny how exciting it is that for the first time in history, in nearly, you know, 250 years, we have a female vice president, like, that's a really, really exciting thing. And um, again, I'm a politics nerd, I'm also a feminist, um, so this just seems it seems like a really exciting moment um and watching her get sworn in i didn't expect to be as emotional as i was and yet you know here we are and uh obviously all the musicians were amazing lady gaga's dress was great uh and her giant mockingjay pin as again i was watch i was watching with my with my dad and she walks out and my dad goes is that is that the thing from the hunger games and i truly had no idea what he was talking about I looked on Twitter and everyone was like, is that the Mockingjay pin from The Hunger Games? Turned out it was an, uh, uh, a dove with an olive branch, which was great. Um, but again, just a very funny moment that everyone just had this like collective experience of um, Lady Gaga's Katniss Everdeen, which, you know, we can all appreciate. The last thing that I wanted to talk about and kind of one of my favorite high points from the whole event was um, Amanda Gorman who is the National Youth Poet Laureate, um, and she spoke kind of at the end of the ceremony, and she just recited this beautiful poem. Um, and again, we all had this collective experience of just being like truly astonished um, by kind of her poise and everything. And I, I can't do her uh, poem justice, so I'm probably going to insert like a clip like here. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. I did cry a couple of times uh, during the whole inauguration, um, just kind of for various reasons. But um, when she spoke, I just truly, you know, like had a very visceral reaction to her words. Um, and I think the fact that she was a young person, she's 23 years old. So I think that the inclusion of young people in this whole ceremony was really important. Um, and again, her words were extremely impactful. Um, and 
you know, again, we, we all had this like kind of universal experience listening to her. Um, and again, I, I said this a lot throughout the whole episode, but I think we're seeing a really important symbolism towards unity and towards kind of moving fo- moving moving forwards instead of continuing to look backwards um, at the last four years. And of course, we need to look at the last four years in order to make sure that nothing like that ever happens again. But at the same time, you know, we need to dust ourselves off, get back in the saddle and, you know, continue to fight for policies that are really going to change people's lives. Um, And if we continue to only look backwards instead of kind of looking forward at what we can do um, instead of what we didn't do, um, I, I think that we kind of will get stuck in this cycle. And I think that it's really important not to take this for granted, at least for the next two years, the Democrats have the trifecta, you know, we have all of this power to really create important policy. So I truly hope that everyone gets to work and we start fighting for some policy on, um, you know, some policy initiatives that I'll be fighting for over the next couple of years um, is fighting for DC statehood, something that I think is insane that it hasn't happened yet. Um, you know, the fact that so many people in DC are just basically disenfranchised um, without any federal representation when there's, you know, there's more people in D.C. than there are in the entire state of Vermont. Uh, And I think that that's going to be a really important policy to fight for. And I know that a lot of people at GW are going to be fighting for that policy. So there's a lot of um, stuff to look forward to um, and to fight for in the next couple of years. Um, And I'm personally very excited to get to work. Um, So with that... That's it for me uh, for this week. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a pleasure. Um, Have a great week. Wear a mask if you go outside. Um, If you see me around uh, in D.C., say hello to me. If you kind of know what I look like, this is just my voice. Um, But with that, thanks so much, and I will see you next week.